So the, the message is Muslim dreams and visions. I originally didn't intend on doing this, but we talked about dreams and visions last week as we were dis looking at popular methods that people use to discern the will of God. And this, uh, this came up because it's, it's really popular today, this, this idea of Muslims receiving dreams and visions of Jesus. And this is really a, a message that you're going to have to pay attention to stay with, because usually I like to go through a book of the Bible, and this isn't exactly like that. We'll get into some scriptures, but there'll be a lot of collateral material that I'll be referencing, kind of like stuff you would get at a Bible conference. But nobody ever invites me to be a Bible conference speaker, so I'm just going to do it here this morning. All right. I'm going to begin with this quote by uh, Jerry Truesdale from Miraculous Movements. It's a book he wrote. Among former Muslim leaders who have come to faith and are discipling others, at least 40% of them reported having a dream or vision of Jesus that led them to forsake their former beliefs and follow him. So early on in the series, I stated that once people have experienced something, which they believe to be very real, it is very difficult to unconvince them. So that's not necessarily my goal. I'm just presenting information to you to get you to think about things. Earl Hulse said this, is the word our authority or is spiritual experience our authority? The Puritans were strong in the area of knowing God by heart experience but they sought to test everything by scripture. We do well to follow their example. Let me give you some uh, data here that I just read about this whole matter of experience and how real it is to people. Christianity Today, September 11th, 2023. In a recent Pew Research Center survey, 42% of self-identified evangelicals said that they had been visited by a loved one who had passed away. It's pretty startling. Rates were even higher among Catholics and black Protestants, two-thirds of whom reported such an experience. Two-thirds of, of professing evangelicals claimed to have seen a dead loved one. That is higher than most Americans who believe a dead family member has come to them in a dream or some other form. In the past year, 26% of evangelical Protestants reported feeling the presence of a family member who died, and 21% spoke to a dead family member about events in their life, the research found. My guess is that this statistic would even be higher in other parts of the world. So are we to believe them? 42% of evangelicals who said a dead family member came back to them? No. That's a practice forbidden by God. It's called necromancy, contacting the dead. Deuteronomy 18, 11, and 12 describes anyone who is a medium or spiritist or consults with the dead, dead is detestable to the Lord. People believe all kinds of things. 3.7 million Americans from all walks of life 
believe that they had experienced alien abduction. They cite all the details of their experiences in many cases, medical examinations or procedures, communication with alien captors, a powerful mystical feeling, tours of spaceships, and journeys to other planets before being returned to their car. 3.7 million Americans claim that. Those experiences to them were real, but false. So we have to at least admit the possibility, all right, that many Muslims who have dreams of Jesus are speaking about something that is very real to them, but false. It wasn't really Jesus. So I want to begin with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, do hold fast that which is good. Quench means to, to put out. It means to stifle a divine influence. Despise not prophecies means to reject prophecies. F.F. Bruce in his commentary on this says, as the context goes on to make plain, the activity chiefly in view here is prophecy. Prophecy. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophecy. In this respect, the spirit may be quenched when the prophet refuses to utter the message he has been given or when others try to prevent him from uttering it. Now, I have to point out to you that this, this came during a time when the prophetic gift was in operation. And any prophetic revelation, according to 1 Corinthians 14, was subject to being examined by the other prophets. So there was a divine control. We don't have that today because we don't have any prophets anymore. Ephesians 2.19 says this, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, speaking of Jesus, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the edifying of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. I believe, and this church teaches, that the sign gifts mentioned in the New Testament have ceased because they're ser they serve their purpose at a time when the word of God was not complete. The apostles and the prophets that God gave as gifts to the church, I don't think it's referring to the Old Testament prophets. I think it's referring to the New Testament prophetic office. But that was the foundation upon which the church was laid. We are out of the foundation stage because we have the full, complete canon of Scripture. Therefore, we no longer receive revelation from the Lord. And I want you to think about this, because it's very, very important. Any claim of Jesus appearing to anyone 
constitutes additional revelation beyond the scripture, special revelation. I think we should at least take that serious, right? Now, I do not desire to quench whatever the Holy Spirit is legitimately doing. But there are lying spirits that are at work to deceive people, and it will keep getting worse. Second Thessalonians 2.8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Cast all things, hold fast to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. Cast means to examine carefully and deem worthy, as if you were examining dokimazo, as if you were examining a, a, a gold or silver to see if it, it is really genuine. Cast it carefully and deem it worthy. Hold fast, if it is, it means to, to eat or to retain to take possession of it. So you, you test all things very carefully before you take possession of it and would pass it on to somebody else. This is what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and 11. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded or more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness. Amen. That's what that's our attitude. And secondly, search the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true, to see what these things, if they were so. It says, and I read that New King James, fair or fair-minded, I think it is, uh, the King James has noble-minded. What, what does that mean? It means to have a disposition that is willing to examine a claim of any doctrine that's present, presented or any experience that may be contrary to the Word of God. And in the case of experiences, it's really hard to test everything. We'll talk more about that. Just remember this. Jesus said, you shall know the what? The truth. And what will set you free? The truth. And Jesus always appealed to the word of God. God's design is from truth to experience, not from experience to truth. So in this message, I will go only as far as the scripture allows me to go. I think that's been the rule of my Christian walk and my ministry for 33 years as a pastor teacher. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I have applied all these things, Paul says to myself and Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That's a really good scripture. And I think Paul is likely expressing there a general principle that has a specific application to the Corinthians who were practicing sectarianism. They were following men, Paulus, Peter, some were even in the Christ party. The JFB, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary says on this verse, revere or esteem the silence of the Holy Writ as much as its declarations. 
so you will less dogmatize on what is not expressly revealed. Pulpit commentary. Perhaps it is sort of a proverb. Keep always to strict evidence. Say nothing which cannot be proved in black and white. Now, I have to admit this to you. My experience on the subject of Muslim dreams is extremely limited. I have none. I can only look at what others have reported. And it would take forever to, I mean, there's so much information out there, data. So I won't pretend to know what I cannot know. An old mountaineer once said this, a man can't no more talk about what he don't know than he can come back from where he ain't been. It sounds like a Will Rogers statement, right? But I do see a number of options when considering the matter of whether or not Muslims are seeing Jesus leading to their salvation. Option number one. Some Muslims are having a divine encounter with Jesus. It's an option. It's a possibility. And some are made up. They're telling tall tales. Muslims are dreamers. And they believe all sorts of things readily. Bill Musk was a former missionary in Egypt for many, many years. And he wrote a work called The Unseen Face of Islam, sharing the gospel with ordinary Muslims at street level. And this was back in 2005. He says, many Christians are aware that Muslims worship a God called Allah, fast during the month of Ramadan, pray five times while facing Mecca, and read the, the Quran. But this view of official Islam is only part of the picture. A vast majority of Muslims are folk Muslims. That is, they follow the practices cited above, but they are also animistic. Musk recounts numerous incidents in which Muslims in various countries of the Islamic world practice divination, wear omelets to ward off the power of the evil eye, and of spirits beings called jinn, J-I-N-N, touch the tombs of saints to receive blessings, cite the names of Allah in a magical way for protection, consult fortune tellers, chant incantations, contact witch doctors for healing, or seek healing by various magical means, using divination for interpreting dreams, making vows at a saint's tomb, and pronouncing curses. What he's saying here is that folk Islam is very, very superstitious. And they are primed to accept dreams readily. Option number two. Some are being deceived by Satan. Now, I don't see any biblical evidence. Maybe I'm wrong that Satan can implant a dream into your mind. I think his power is limited in many spheres. But our dreams can be influenced by our emotions and our behavior. And Satan can indirectly, I believe, cause us to have some negative, fearful emotions resulting in wild dreams and even nightmares. I mean, the whole dream world is just bizarre. Three, dreams are often influenced by what we have been thinking about or recently experienced. Maybe things that have been just going on in your mind for some time. And then you find yourself 
dreaming about them. The great majority of Muslims who dream of Jesus, and this is very important, upwards of 80% had prior exposure to Christian material or teaching of some sort. And that is why they often report that the man they saw had a shining white robe or looked like the Sunday school pictures of Jesus. That's how many have described him, what I call the Catholic Jesus. Number four, Satan also has influence in the promotion of false religious experiences and visions. Now, let's be clear. The Bible doesn't give us any description of Jesus, does it? So how would these people know who they're really seeing? Right? But the pictures they've seen, that's what comes to, to their mind. That's what they report. But Satan also can promote false religious experience and visions. We saw that in the scripture that we looked before, especially in the latter days. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles. That means sent ones of Jesus. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. I remember one time, right here in this church, I had a guy come and he did some work for us. And we got to talking and he, he, he wanted my thoughts and opinions on near-death experiences because he had one. And he said he was a Christian. And he says that, that when he, I guess, expired, you know, whatever. And he says, he, you know, he saw this bright and shining light. And if you look at near-death experiences, there's many people who claim that, they, you know, they're drawn to this bright light. And they feel this, this intense peace that they've never experienced before. Not all. Some of them, some of them feel in terror with those type of experiences. But it was very real to him, incredibly real to him. So my fifth option, many Muslims are not really seeing Jesus, but sincerely believe they have. They're having a normal dream experience with prior exposure and claiming it as a divine encounter because of the content of the dream. They might eventually convert to some form of evangelicalism, Protestantism, or Catholicism. Did you know that thousands and thousands, some say even millions of Muslims, are converting to Catholicism as a result of dreams and visions that they claim they've had? Charbel, a Muslim, was baptized in 2017 after visions and messages set him on a path to discover Christianity. It was during Ramadan. As he was walking in Beirut after morning prayers at the mosque, Charbel heard a voice from the sky, words which he had previously never heard before. Glory be to Jesus, the only Son of God, and glory to the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. Six months later, he was baptized as a Catholic, and he entered a monastery. And I would suppose he's now spreading his word about dreams and visions. Many Muslims, some articles I, I read say millions have seen the Virgin Mary. The Quran refers to her 70 times and identifies her as the greatest woman who ever lived. And there's even a mosque, I think, somewhere in Dubai that was dedicated to Mary. I don't know how that goes. but So... Lots of Catholics are seeing these things, or lots of Muslims are seeing these things, and they're becoming Catholic. 
Talk about confusion. Talk about Satan sowing confusion. So we should expect Christians to be discerning when examining supernatural claims, right? Amen. Proverbs 14.15. Proverbs 14.15 says, The simple or the naive, that means the open-minded or easily persuaded, believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. So I'm just trying to tell you, don't believe everything you hear. And here's this thing that, that I found with Christians. They hear something, and then did they just start passing it on. And this is why the Christian church has been so deceived by so many people, like Johnny Todd, former Satanist, the Illuminati, made his way in the Christian conference speaking circuit, Tony Alamo, converted Catholic priest, end up to be a child molester like, John, like Johnny Todd did. He was never a Catholic priest, but he was preaching in fundamental Baptist churches, telling his conversion story. Bart Brewer spoke with him, couldn't speak a word of Latin. He was a total phony. I could give you name after name after name where Christians just accepted these people, never really put them to the test. And they ended up writing books and all kinds of things. They used the church really as a, as a means of getting wealthy. So we need to be, you know, a little bit skeptical, right? A healthy skepticism, I put in your notes, is not wrong. It's not an indication of unbelief. And the point I made under this is we should believe that God can do anything he wants to do, right? Without contracting his, contradicting his essential natures, his Godhead. He can't lie and do other things like that. But we should expect him to do the things he says he will do. He can do anything he wants to do without contradicting his nature, but we should expect him to do the things that he says he will do. And we have to look to the scripture alone for that, because that's where God tells us the things that he will do or will not do. As I often do, I want to uh, go back to where I left off last week. Because I went through it kind of quickly, and that would be the prophecy of Joel in chapter 2 around verses 28 through 32. Now, it's important to understand this prophecy because many authors and speakers point to this. This prophecy as evidence to validate the Muslim dream experiences and other signs and wonders in our day. I can't tell you how many people I've read in the articles on dreams and visions of Muslims who quoted this verse. Many of them did. Jack Deere, I'll give you this quote, surprised by the voice of God, how God speaks today through prophecies, dreams, and visions. Peter claimed that the day of Pentecost was the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel 2.28.32. With the coming of the Spirit, there is a sense in which every Christian is to be prophetic. Not true. There will be prophecies, dreams, and visions in the church without distinction in regard to gender, age, or economic position. So he goes back to this prophecy in Joel, like so many do, and say, here is the evidence that God says people are going to have dreams and visions. Now, Joel prophesied, if you look at the whole of the prophecy, what would happen in the distant future? Joel was taking a, an event that was occurring in his time, a locust plague, which was what he called the day of the Lord. 
That's the day of the Lord is an immediate judgment of God or a judgment that's coming very soon was devastating the land. He's saying, you need to repent. You need to repent and turn to the Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's using that near event to talk about a greater event and actually an event in, in closer in time to, to Joel when the Assyrians would come in and then the Babylonians and they would totally devastate the land, just like the locusts were. But he was looking far, far ahead into the distant future about the ultimate day of the Lord, the final outpouring of God's wrath. And he says in Joel 2.28, will come to pass afterwards, afterwards, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. There's your quote. Your young men will see visions. And on, on my servants and my maidservants, that's really... Everyone across Israel, Israel society, I will pour out my spirit in those days, in those latter days. And then he ties it to heavenly astronomical phenomenon that will occur, which has never occurred in this world. I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it will come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord at that time, when the earth is facing a catastrophic judgment, the time of Jacob's trouble in which none of the, none of the elect, the Jews who were going to be saved at that time would be saved if God had not shortened that time period in eternity past. But whoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. So I noted the dreams and visions occurred along with heavenly wonders before the coming of that terrifying part of the day of the Lord. Revelation 6.12 substantiates this. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as the sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. Listen, I've read books of people, the three blood moons and all this stuff. And yes, I won't say anything more about it. They made money. Everybody else got fooled. And the stars of heavens fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. This has not occurred. The red appearance of the moon portends judgment. It signifies a judgment. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the latter part of the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. This has not happened. Not happened. The only teaching Jesus gave concerning his future appearances on earth relate to his physical return to earth. And there is no biblical record of Jesus appearing to any unbeliever following his ascension other than Paul on the road to Damascus. So Joel said that dreams and visions would come after certain things have occurred. And I'm going to go through this quickly. You'll have to read it yourself. Joel chapter 2, 1 to 10. Israel will be invaded from the north. We know that that's going to happen. 
And then in verse 211 and, and three, chapter three, verses one and two, the battle of Armageddon will occur. The Lord gives voice before his army, Joel 2.11. His camp is great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? This is the day of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days, at that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And will plead with them for my people, that's Israel, for my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Zechariah talked about this. Chapter 14, behold, the day of the Lord comes and the spoil will be divided in the midst of thee. I will gather all nations, just what Joel said, Joel said against Jerusalem to battle. Battle. The city will be taken. The house is rifled. The women ravished. Half of the city will go to captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives. This is the return of Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost was fully, fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them cloven tongues like fire that sat upon them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying, Look, aren't these all Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language? And then it names all these different languages that they were hearing at that time, all from the visitors to, to Rome, Jews and proselytes, even Arabs and Cretans. We hear them speaking in our own language, the wonderful works of God. So speaking in tongues was the supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. And it was the supernatural gift, tongues, of languages, which a person had never learned before. But they were languages. It was not an angelic language. It was a real language that people heard them speaking in. It was not in an unknown tongue. That's not in the Greek text. That's in italicized. And they were all amazed. And they said, what could this be? What does this mean? I mean, all these supernatural phenomena occurring there. Others says, well, wait a minute. They're full of wine. You know, they're drunk, right? But Peter said, no, no, hear my words. They're not drunk like you're thinking. It's only the third hour of the day. This was that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In other words, the prophet Joel spoke about a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit. I think Peter used Joel's prophecy as a illustration of the supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It foreshadowed a greater outcome to come. Peter's reference to Joel did not constitute a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. He didn't say the prophecy was fulfilled, only that the power of the Spirit was working in a very unique way at that time. And it should. It was the beginning of the church age. I think it was somewhat rhetorical because, because God obviously wasn't pouring out the Spirit 
on all, on all flesh, on everybody. And actually, if you look in the record in the book of Acts, only a very few people are called prophets. And the act of prophesying in Acts is very rare. So this could not have been a literal fulfillment of what Joel prophesied. Dr. Ezen Busanet says this, Only two points of contact are found between Joel's prophecy and Pentecost. God's Spirit was poured out, and those who called upon the name of the Lord were saved at the end of Peter's. That's it. That's it. Nothing else happened on Pentecost that Joel spoke about. But it is those two elements of Joel's prophecy, the Spirit being poured out and salvation for those who call upon the Lord, that provided the link to Pentecost. So he makes this connection. And then when you look at Joel chapter 3, he's describing national salvation, the spiritual restoration of Israel, the one-third that will be saved during the tribulation period. And at that time, dreams and visions will occur across the board in Israel on everyone, without exception. So Joel 2, in Act, you know, the citation in Acts 2 of Joel offers no support to current dreams or visions of Jesus. Nothing Joel prophesied actually happened in Acts chapter 2. You can't make that connection. No New Testament writer ever thought of basing the central message, the gospel, or any essential part of it on dreams. None of them did. There is no single instance in the Bible in which God declared the gospel solely through a dream. I think it's an, another matter to say that God can use a dream or something like that as a pre-conversion providential act, like with Cornelius in the New Testament in Acts 11. But even that would have to be carefully examined, right? Many of the stories of Muslims seeing Jesus are hearsay. It's just what they're saying. Keep in mind that the conversion of Cornelius, who did get a dream, leading to his conversion. Keep this in mind. Pentecost, the birth of the church, monumental event. Cornelius, first Gentile to be saved. And the Apostle Peter was the one who would lead him to Christ. So it's in a category, special revelation that stands alone, because Jesus said that he was going to give to Peter the, the keys to the kingdom of, of heaven. And Peter used those keys. He used those keys on the day of Pentecost. He used those keys to, to open up things to the Jews and, and, and with Cornelius to the Gentiles. So he was a unique person that God had set apart to do these things. So how big an event was this conversion of Cornelius and God's giving him this vision? How big of an event was this? Huge. It was very big. Dick Fisher was a good friend of mine. I, he's preached the apologetics uh, conference here in this church. And I had contact with him for many years. He pastored a Baptist church for 40 years. He, he, he made at least 30 trips to Israel. He was uh, taught classes on archaeology. Uh, I mean, he was, he was really solid. But he also worked for personal freedom outreach and apologetics ministry. 
And here's what he said about this. Conversion of Cornelius. This is a wonderful fact that is often missed in the 10th and 11th chapter of Acts. Most know the story of Peter and his sharing the gospel with the Gentile Cornelius. For the Jews to even imagine Gentile acceptance by God was unthinkable. We'd all agree with that, right? They couldn't imagine that God would allow Gentiles in. Peter had to be forced by God to make the journey from Joppa to Caesarea. What is missed by most is that Peter took six other men with him. Why? Why this contingent of seven, Peter and six? Was it just arbitrary? Why does Peter so emphatically say, moreover, these six brethren accompanied me as we entered this man's house? So he says this, dramatic claims, convincing Jews and Gentiles, convincing Jews that Gentiles could be accepted by God required dramatic evidence. Archaeologist and author Jim Fleming, who instructs Israeli guys and resides in Jerusalem for many years, reminds us that the ancient courts required seven witnesses to judge serious cases. So Peter goes well beyond the establishment of, of the requirement for Jewish law, two or three. He brings six with him because it was such a significant event it wasn't going to stand on his testimony alone. So here's another matter of concern, going through this quickly. John Spannon, a mission publication, December 3rd, 2019. Reversion. Why do Christian converts from Islam return to their old religion? And that's happening, unfortunately, because they're not being discipled. He says, there is much to celebrate worldwide in terms of unprecedented numbers of Muslims coming to know Jesus. The global church has to deal with discipling these new worshipers of Jesus, the biblical Jesus, to integrate them into the life of this church, the church. These are wonderful challenges. At the same time, as there are encouraging statistics of growing numbers of ex-Muslims now in Christ, there is a statistic that few missionaries want to talk about. It's the worrisome number of so-called converts who return to Islam after seeing Jesus or the person they thought was Jesus. In 1991, a veteran missionary, Ken Witcherly, who planted churches in many different Muslim cities, reported that 80 to 90% of the converts he saw from Islam returned to Islam. Returned to Islam. And his observation was the cause of a phenomenon that he called incomplete conversion, or what he called premature birth. In 2005, Thomas Walsh conducted a study of British ex-Muslims and their integration into the church. He interviewed people from varied backgrounds. Among them were Paul and Deborah, with the first being of the Punjabi background and the latter of the Iranian background. Both had been Christians for 20 years, and they suggested that reversion to Islam occurs when the church does not address the totality of life among those converts. And he cited a statistic of 17 to 90 percent who returned to Islam that he saw when the social, cultural, political, and spiritual reason they try of Islam are not addressed by the church. They're not. They go back. What did John say? 
1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So there are false conversions. Mark 4, 16, others like seed sown on the rocky place, hear the word once to receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. We shouldn't be surprised by this. When trouble or persecution comes, which often happens to Muslims who say they've become Christians, they face intense persecutions. Because of the word, they quickly fall away. It wasn't a real conversion. So last Sunday, I referenced the scriptures where we find warnings in scripture concerning those who will be deceived by dreams and visions. And I noted that when dreams were given by God, one of two things happened. Either the dream required no interpretation and it was easily understood by the recipient of the dream or the interpretation was required. As, as was with Daniel. I would add to this, that no prophetic dream from God resulted in confusion or a lack of understanding. None. When God gave dreams, they were purposeful, they were specific, and they left no room for, for ambiguity. Dr. William Barak, Old Testament scholar, ministered among the Muslims in Bangladesh for 15 years. He offered these observations about the reported visions of Jesus that Muslims were receiving there. Most turned out, he says, to be a pure imagination upon close examination and questioning. None had re really seen him while awake. While awake. Every, everyone had some sort of a dream of an image of Jesus that they had seen before and been exposed to. And then he said, number two, Muslims can, can be extremely susceptible to charismatic doctrine and practices because much of folk Islam is identified with the same things in charismatic circles, speaking in tongues, healings, miracles, extreme emotionalism. So he didn't really see converts there in the numbers that they were reporting. No, I'm, I have to close, so thank you for bearing with me. Dennis McBride wrote in a, an article, An Evaluation of Muslim Dreams, two parts. An Evaluation of Muslim Dreams and Visions of Isa, Jesus. In Acts 17.11, God commended the Bereans for putting the gospel to the test. We already covered that, right? That's a good Berean. But testing Muslim dreams is more difficult by far than testing the gospel because the gospel praise God, is singular, cohesive, object, objective entity readily affirmed by direct biblical support. Whereas those personal dreams are numerous, varied, subjective, and virtually impossible to test due to their extra biblical content. He said this, some say that Jesus has to intervene personally because the church has failed to evangelize Muslims. Has the church failed to evangelize Muslims? Yes. How good are we doing with the Buddhists? How good are we doing with the Hindus? How good are we doing with, with, with people in tribal religions? Not so good, right? All those people are unevangelized as well. He says that could be said of any people group at any time in church history. 
and even of individual, individuals in our own culture who haven't heard the gospel because a Christian fan, friend fails to share it with them. So we're part of the problem. So he said, if that were the case, dreams and visions would be commonplace. If God was trying to reach people who didn't hear the gospel, why not all these other people? Why aren't they hearing these things? Why aren't the Hindus getting visions? Why aren't the Buddhists? Why aren't the tribal religions? All of these things. He says, I'm struck with the impossibility of testing them according to Scripture because their extra-biblical content is so extensive and varied. Many of the dreams contain a verse or two of Scripture, along with encouragement to seek the Savior. In many, Esau identifies himself or Jesus as Jesus or is assured, assumed to be Jesus. Even Tom Boyle, Tom Doyle, who wrote a, a pro, you know, favorable article about Jesus awakening the Muslim world. He says, it seems like each one encounters a powerful, gentle person who overwhelmed him or her, not with endurable shame as the Muslim leaders did, but with a pure love that they felt deep inside. Now, you know, when I read that, it reminded me of these people who have near-death experiences and they feel this peace. They feel this love that they've never felt before. I often say, look, if Jesus was going to identify, why didn't he just tell them the gospel, right? Why didn't he just give them, you know, what he always did? And that's what McBride's last point is here. I'm struck most by what Isa or Isa didn't say in the accounts that I've read of these dreams. Although the encounters are said to prepare the dreamers for the gospel, there is little or no mention of sin repentance, confession, righteousness, forgiveness, no presentation of God's holiness, no talk about God's justice. Simply put, the need for salvation isn't clarified, or in most cases, isn't even mentioned. Yet this is at the heart, this was at the heart of Christ's communication with unbelievers when he was on earth. But this gospel is minimalistic, if at all, and void of any clear and concise call to repentance. And this has been my observation as well when I read many articles about these dreams that people were having, these encounters with Jesus. I was struck by the fact that no clear gospel message is presented. But when Jesus sent his disciples out into all the world, what did he say to them? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But he's appearing to all kinds of people and he's not preaching the gospel to them. That seems really odd. Really strange. As a matter of fact, some take it even further than this. Joel Rosenberg, he said his favorite book of the Bible was Joel. You could understand why. The author of Epicenter. Rosenberg asserts that Muslims are being converted to Christianity without anyone sharing the gospel with them. Through visions, dreams, and other miraculous means. Popular author. On the speaking circuit, Muslims are being converted to Jesus without anyone sharing the gospel with them. 
Now, most of them don't claim that. They'll say that this is just the first encounter leading to somebody presenting the gospel message to them. But as I said earlier, 80% of them already had prior exposure to Christian material. So here's this final thought by Dennis McBride. To believe in Jesus of the Bible is one thing. To believe in the Jesus of one dreams, one's dreams is quite another. Muslims who are coming to Jesus are equating the two. The person that they see in their dreams, they're equating that with the real Jesus of the Bible. Now, again, God can do anything he wants to do, right? Can't prove me wrong. I'm skeptical of all these stories. When you look at the whole body of evidence, with very, very few people do, some have, you would come away with thinking, well, wow, it doesn't sound like, you know, it matches up with, with Scripture. And then when you throw in the element of many people, these people converting back to Islam or converting to Catholicism, Satan is the author of confusion. And I think this has brought about a great deal of confusion. And I'm going to leave it there.